FieldQuest listeners and viewers, I am so excited to have Remy Blumenfeld coming up on an upcoming episode of DealQuest. Um, his background in the creative field and doing deals as a coach is, uh, is so exciting. He's going to bring so much value. Remy, what are people going to hear about on your episode of DealQuest? Gosh, what are they not going to hear about? I want to talk about buying and selling your company. I want to talk about working backwards from a buyer's checklist to make sure that you found a company that someone will actually one day want to buy. I want to talk about what it means to sell a TV show into multiple markets. I want to talk about all the mistakes that I've made along the way and all the learning that I've had from my biggest failures so that you can save millions of dollars by not making the same mistakes that I did. And folks, listen, you know, and one of the things that Remy does as a coach now is help other people in those creative fields not make those same mistakes. So watch out for his episode on DealQuest. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. Remy Blumenfeld is one of the world's leading business coaches and advisors. He's contributed more than 50 articles to Forbes and has been listed by the independent newspaper as one of the top 20 most influential LGBTQ people in the United Kingdom. He has been featured in the New York Times, the Sunday Times, Forbes, and Inc. I am so excited to have Remy Blumenfeld on the DealQuest podcast. Remy, welcome. Corey, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's fantastic. I'm excited about this interview. Um, before we get into all the amazing things you do in terms of a, you know, a top business coach for folks and the deals you've done and all that, all that kind of great stuff and the phenomenal background you have, I want to take you back to when you were a little boy growing up, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. Uh, what did you want to be? Because I find for most folks, uh, you know, it isn't what they're doing now back when they were a kid. But you tell me, maybe. <laughs> well, it's a good question. In a way, I... I think I always knew I wanted to be in the communication business. So I remember my parents gave me a little cassette recorder. That's what you recorded on in those days. Yeah. And I used to interview my friends and I really enjoyed doing that. So um, I found the old tapes the other day and it's hilarious listening to them, but I was interviewing my friends. So I think I probably thought that I wanted to be uh, a reporter of some kind. And I did do that at the start of my career. That is what the first job I ever had was as a reporter for the Wall Street Journal TV show out of New York. And I enjoyed that. Um, but yeah, that was a long time ago. Yeah. Well, but you actually did do it professionally. That's that's interesting. You know, you, you brought me back. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking because uh, uh, I, I don't I don't know uh, what age we are relatively, but I think we're somewhere in the in the yeah, same yeah, yeah, ballpark. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, I remember I had a cassette tape recorder, which I didn't use for recording. I used it much more for listening to music. 
Um, and it was one of these rectangular ones that had the buttons in the front. Yeah, yeah, um, that's it. That was it. That was it. Oh, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. All right, one more question looking back. Uh, what what was the first deal of any type that you can remember doing, whether it was something as a kid or older or? Yeah, totally. It was totally as a kid. Um, so I, at a, at a school boot fair, I guess you'd call it, it was like a, a bring and buy sale where everyone was trying to raise money for the school. I bought this set of toy theater prints. So like back before movies and stuff, children used to go to see little um, puppet theaters with paper puppets and their parents would like put the paper puppets in front of sets. And there was this thing called Pollock's Toy Theaters and I bought the whole set for like five pounds. <laughs> and then I sold it um, for a few hundred pounds. So wow. that was my first deal, <laughs> yeah. Wow, yeah. so, hey, so, you know, younger folks, for all of you who are flipping things on Craigslist or eBay or, you know, all of this stuff or listening to folks like, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk who, who promote the flip life, it's not a new thing. It's been going on for a long time. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story, Corey. I was um, in China about 15 years ago doing a deal for ITV Studios, Britain's largest commercial broadcast, and we were doing a deal with Hunan TV. And it was very formal, um, very unlike any business uh, deal I'd ever sat in before because everything was staged. And like me and the president of Hunan TV had sort of thrones. I, I'm not exaggerating, like big chairs at the top of this huge room and everyone was gathered. And I'd never met him before, but we were about to sign this deal to right. distribute programs. And he looked at me and he said, your people, my people, we do business long time. And I didn't really know what he meant, but later I discovered that what he meant was that Jewish people and Chinese people had been trading for a long time. Yes. And so he was kind of saying, you know, this goes back a long time, the Chinese <laughs> and the Jews. You know, it's, it's interesting for me, and I don't obviously, you know, any generalization we make about any group and take it with a grain of salt and whatever. But culturally, um, it's, you know, dealing with, uh, with Asians, especially Chinese uh, folks, the, the sense of history and not only that, but the sense of um, such a long-term view into the future is I have found, and, you know, I'm not the only one that's been written about whatever, is, is uh, it's just so in the, in the Chinese culture, right? Is the sense of like, you know, uh, placing moments now in the context of history and also having a very long-term view of things very often. Totally, totally. And looking into the future, like you say, a hundred years, not five years. And I think a lot of that has to do with the way their political systems have worked uh, over time. You know, we think in cycles of four years, whereas they think in cycles of a hundred years. <laughs> right. And some would argue, at least in the States, that companies think in cycles of quarters. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, too true. Too true. Um, good stuff. So um, give us, I, I definitely want to go, uh, you know, have you go back and talk about all the, uh, you know, amazing experiences. And, you know, you mentioned one of many deals you've done, but uh, let's just uh, spend a couple of minutes um, expanding on your, uh, your bio in terms of what you're doing now as, you know, really a top uh, business coach and who you serve and what you focus on. Give people a little, a uh, little insight into that. Yeah. So um, like many people I discovered in business, I ended up being a coach. So I was leading uh, companies that I ran and the people who reported to me essentially were like 
clients in a coaching relationship and I was their coach. The only thing was I didn't have any training as a coach and right. they hadn't necessarily invited me to coach them. So you can imagine. <laughs> um, but I then got training as a coach and discovered that it still didn't really work when you were coaching people who hadn't asked for coaching. So I transitioned uh, after selling my last business and now I coach leaders who are mostly in the creative sector. So yeah. film, TV, advertising, gaming, publishing, and they're mostly founders of companies and they want a combination of coaching and business advice and mentoring. It's a kind of weird hybrid that I do, but I think most coaches would, would say that it is, a, it is a weird hybrid and every client wants that mix in a slightly different proportion. And some people refer to me as their special advisor. Some people refer to me as a coach, just depends on, on them. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's great. And it, and it sounds like a phenomenal combination. And so, you know, you mentioned after you sold your last business. So obviously that was a deal. I know you've done many deals in the space. So let, let, let's go back, I, whether you want to go backwards or forwards uh, in terms of your, uh, you know, your career. I'll let you do that. And also in the context of deals, I'd love to hear. Well, we'll just zip. I mean, so I started my first production company, Corey, out of my bedroom in Brixton, which was a rough part of London. And sure. I started my company because the because I was out of a job, because the TV channel that I was working for had just been uh, taken off the map. So I was over overnight. I was out of work and thought I would sell ideas to broadcasters, which I tried to do. But the thing is, no one wants to buy from a person. No one wants to trust that much money and responsibility to an individual. So I branded my company myself as a company. Yeah. And essentially, to begin with, I was just one person out of a room in Brixton. And I was doing what um, I now advise other people to do, but I was doing it by accident. So what I was doing was making programs about the area that I lived in and understood and knew best. So I was you know, a young, gay, Jewish man living in a rough area of London. And yep. so I made programs about the edges of society. Now, luckily for me, the edges of society became the middle and you know a lot of those programs took off, but we made the first black music show on terrestrial TV in the UK. We made wow. the first Asian pop culture show on wow. the BBC. We made the first gay dating show. And so we did quite well by doing what we knew and understood best. And I think whenever you're selling something, uh, it really helps to be an expert in whatever you're doing. Whatever the product or services is that you're selling, it helps for the buyer to recognize they couldn't be buying it from a better person than you. Like, right. you know, Nat, Nat Geo is a fantastic brand, but you wouldn't go to have your hair cut at Nat Geo. You know, so I think we were just doing what we were trusted to do because we understood it and we loved it and it came naturally. And we that was an organic thing, it happened naturally. And, yeah. and just 10 years after we started that first company, um, we sold it for a high multiple to Endemol, which was at the time the world's largest global production company. And um, our company that had started making programs about the edges of society ended up making Big Brother. So it was quite a, you know, quite, quite a, a growth story. So l let me ask you a question on that in terms of the, the exit. Um, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm making an assumption, you correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, when you started that out of your, you know, apartment in Brooklyn, yeah. I, I, I don't assume the first thing that you thought of was I'm going to build something to sell it in 10 years um, necessarily. But at, at what point, uh, and if that's, if that, if I am right about that, at what point 
um, did did you start thinking about selling it, or was it the kind of thing where you were running it and you got approached, or you know, how did that all come about? Well, um, I think at a certain point we understood that production companies had a value that we hadn't quite recognized, mainly because that that market had not been there when we started our company. We were right. we were doing what we loved, and if you do what you love, you don't go wrong. At the same time, we were making our money from selling programs to the UK and to the US and making a production fee on that. So we didn't think at the time we, we had a company that anyone wanted to buy, but about probably six or seven years into running that company, the independent TV production sector became something that people were interested in investing in and big companies like Endemol started buying up smaller companies like us. And so naturally at that point we wanted to sell. And I think, you know, the thing that I always advise people to do, Corey, is to imagine that they're going to sell from day one. Because we, we, we did it, you know, suddenly six years in, we were thinking, you know, we had to face lots of realities about the value of our business that we had never really thought about before. Like, you know, you're only as valuable as a multiple of your EBITDA. Like, if you don't have the processes in place for a big ocean liner to come on board, they won't buy you. If you you know if you're a very eccentric, strangely run company with weird systems, and they won't. It's not an easy fit. So you have to start. You have to run your small company like it's a big company, and you have to watch the bottom line from day one because all they're interested in is uh, EBITDA growth line that looks like this. And if you don't have that line, they don't want you. You know, a line like this isn't any good, and a line like this isn't any good. And the line that goes up and then down isn't any, you just, they only want this line. So right. you need to create that story in numbers and you need to create a company that is desirable. There are lots of things. I mean, we basically discovered at seven or eight years in what a buyer wants and what their checklist is. And I now work with founders to implement that checklist much earlier on. So, that, yeah. so that they're basically creating something that other people want to buy without having to do that as a last minute scrabble of dressing the bride, as they say, you know, on the way to the altar, but actually creating something that is of value to other people early on. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because especially in the, in, in the earliest stages, there are some competing, uh, you know, interests, right? I mean, you know, um, if people are still, you know, uh, figuring out a way to eat off their company, uh, you know, usually they're pulling out as much money as they, you know, as they need. And, you know, so obviously, you, you know, um, you know, it affects it affects what the what the business looks like, or or the classic, you know, putting a lot of expenses through the business, right? You know, totally. uh, I mean, paying you yourself. Know, which, you know, yeah. I suddenly had to face that reality, Corey. You know too well, which is that you know suddenly uh, a salary of a hundred thousand dollars is actually worth a million because right. you know it's worth a million a year off your bottom line, and similarly, a taxi which is ten dollars is a hundred dollars. So. You, start, you really start thinking differently about how you spend money. And, um, and that's also something which is really important for founders to engage with early on, because the sooner you engage with it, the easier it becomes. When you're doing all that at the end, it's like retrofitting a car. It's really awkward. Yeah, yeah. And listen, I, we've certainly had companies where, you know, the accountants come in, the lawyers come in, the business coaches, whatever, come in and you and you clean things up and get it ready. And, you know, and and it's possible to get, to get a deal done, but it's a lot of work and it limits, sometimes limits your buyers or, or, or uh, affects your timing. Now you gotta, you know, that process can take six months or a year. And then you, you want to have another year or two, a couple of years showing results. So now, 
you know, and maybe the market is hot right now. So now you're going to miss, you know, either miss the opportunity or get a lower valuation. 100%. But I also, you know, what I got to learn firsthand was the psychology of buying a company, because in a way, that's, that's really the most important thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the most important things after the multiple of your EBITDA is the most important thing. And I think very often, um, ego gets in the way of people doing the best and shrewdest job. And I'll, I'll explain to you what I mean, like in the creative sector, which I work in, to be able to uh, feel like you have done the best possible job exploiting your rights, taking advantage of every revenue stream that there is across all platforms is quite important. You wouldn't, you wouldn't really feel very proud of yourself if you felt like you had just forgotten to sell to China or you'd forgotten to sell to digital platforms or you'd forgotten to do it again. But the psychology of a deal, it's just like buying a house. The buyer wants to feel that they can improve significantly on your company once they buy it. So in a sense, they're more attracted if they think you haven't run the company very well. And so it's much better to play the game of, oh, I totally forgot. Like the analogy I use with people is like, if you're selling a house and the buyer says, oh, you know, have you ever thought about putting rooms in the loft or the basement? And you go, oh yeah, yeah, we thought about that, but you know, we applied for planning permission and they turned us down six times. The buyer's not gonna be so excited by the house. Whereas if you go, Oh, gee, uh, rooms in the loft, we never thought of that. Right. What suddenly, a great idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> suddenly they, they're so much more excited because they think they can do something with the house that you haven't yeah. done. So they want to be smarter than you and they yeah. want to think that they will run the company better than you. And you have to allow them to think that even if it means that they think you're an idiot. Yeah, and and, and and I'm sure, I know you're making a point, but, but I'm sure, you know, uh, you recognize and people recognize there's got to be a balance to that because they they also they can't think you're a total idiot because yeah. they because they then they're worried about what what skeletons are in the closet or what you know so they have to think you're you're competent enough to not have a mess uh but that they're way more competent than you know than you are yeah. like you're reasonably well, competent genius. and they're like genius <laughs> you know? i mean the mess is a whole nother story isn't it Corey? Right. because like you have to like especially in the creative sector like this is an area which people don't really engage with it's called show business and they just forget about the business part and the truth is if you don't have a good accountant working for you if you don't have a good bookkeeper if the if the books aren't easy to audit and in shape and the due diligence takes too long they just lose interest because you know unless the deal is huge they don't want to spend months of time on due diligence they just want to look through the books and go oh this is great this is in great shape and it's very clear where the money is and yeah. but once they look at that they want to go and it's very clear where it is and we think we could really improve on it that's and right. usually that's by you know making savings um getting you to move into their space and so on and so forth and you know again this is something which i have to coach leaders on all the time because leaders i mean founders of businesses in the creative sector are deluded that and understandably so because buyers want them to be but you know they've actually believed that they're going to sell their house which is their business the new buyer is going to just let them live in it and carry on as normal and basically they're going to have a few million pounds but live in their house that they've always lived in and nothing else is going to change and i say look just forget that the moment they move in they're going to tell you they hate your art, they hate your cleaning lady, they hate you. <laughs> it's not you, you know. You're not going to be living there happily ever after with a new buyer. It's 
as short a time as possible. So, and, and, and you know, and the, and the thing is, you know, and I've seen this, you know, obviously this concept applies in, in any industry and, you know, uh, in space, but uh, again, to generalize, you know, in the creative space, right. You know, there's this, there is this thought, right. Of, you know, I, I want create, I don't care about the business stuff. You can run the business stuff. Cause I didn't want to do that anyway. I just want creative control. Yeah. Right. And, and, and the buyers will often talk the right game, right. You know, Oh yeah, we, we you know, we, we love you. That's the reason we want to buy you because you're so brilliant and, you know, and yeah, we'll give you creative control and yeah, we just, we're just going to, you know, put in some funding and we're going to be able to expand your distribution or, you know, we have contacts or whatever the pitch is. Um, and, uh, and listen, I, I mean, there's occasional examples where maybe that was worked out, but yeah, in the far majority of the time that, uh, that creative control gets, uh, you know, uh, pretty frustrating. hundred percent, hundred percent. But the good news from my perspective is that uh, I don't have a company to sell now. I'm just coaching people who do. And I, I now I'm talking about a whole different um, ball game when it comes to deals, because, you know, the truth is that as a coach, what I'm talking about with clients is the most important deal that they ever will do, which is the contract with themselves. Yes. Because if you don't do that right, nothing else will follow. Who you are, how you lead, what you allow yourself to do, what you don't allow yourself to do, what you promise yourself you will do and follow through on is everything. And I think you know, people often outplace those things. They think, well, you know, the business is somehow separate from me. The business will do what it does and I will do what I do. The, the two are completely intertwined. And, and unless you are disciplined about the contract you strike with yourself and stick to it, um, you're pretty much over. Well, and listen, I mean, that, and that's one of the beautiful things as a coach. And I'm not just saying that because you happen to be my guest today. I, I have, co you know, I, I've used coaches. I have a coach now. I've, you know, I've had coaches over the years. Uh, and, you know, one of the main reasons I have a coach is because, yeah, sure, I could make that contract with myself, um, but who's holding me accountable? Nobody, right? You know, unless I've got a coach. Or, you know, I mean, some, I, I don't have, right now, I don't have any business partners. Most of my career, I've, I've had, I haven't had business partners, right? Theoretically, you, you know, your business partner can help with that. But even that's a problem because, um, first of all, they're not trained to hold you accountable and support you and coach you and advise you in the right way. Second of all, they're an interested party often in, in those in those decisions, which creates all kinds of other dynamics. And third of all, sometimes when you're in a partnership, the thing you want to talk about with your coach is the partnership or the partner. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, even 100%, that 100%, 100%. And, you know, the other thing, which is, uh, you know, when you're talking to a friend or a business partner, they have their own stuff. So, and you know what it is. So it's kind of hard for them to say, you know, you should, you should stick to your plan of working out three days a week or whatever it is when they're not working out at all, or you should really, you know, commit to your growth plan when you know they have. So it's, it becomes a very, uh, a mirroring thing where it's really with clients, the, the, thing I'm most passionate about is defining your own success, not by the standards of your business partner or your father or your partner, just, just your own standard. So getting people to commit to their own goals independent of anybody else and then holding them accountable to those. Not, not how they relate to my goals or, you know, I have, I have clients with, uh, you know, amazing goals that I would never commit to in areas that I wouldn't, dream of committing to and I can support them and champion them and hold them accountable because I'm not 
involved. I am just their coach. So I'm not comparing myself to them. They're not looking at me and thinking, well, how is he telling me to run two kilometers every morning when he doesn't even get on the treadmill because it's not relevant? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, for me that, um, I mean, in addition to that, I, I, I agree with you. I do look at that as a deal, right? A deal amongst, you know, ourselves. And then, and then, you know, the, the deal you make it with your coach to actually allow them to hold you accountable. And, you know, um, but it also ties very directly for me into other types of deals. So, so for example, um, you know, I have talked to many entrepreneurs about even the concept of, of selling their company. Right. And, and um, I had many uh, very early, I don't know, it was probably in the first 50 episodes. I, should, I don't have the episode with me. Uh, but as an example, I had um, a good client, a friend of mine, David Gersh, on the podcast um, uh, last year. And he, he's made a conscious, I mean, it may change over time, right? He's in his 50s, right? But, you know, he's, he's had opportunities to sell his company, significant money, and he's chosen not to. And the reason he's chosen not to is a few things. He has some very close friends who sold their, their business. By the way, more money than they'll ever, like they did great financially. Um, but they did, what they didn't have is a clear plan on what's what now, right? What's next? And they sort of have regrets about selling their company because, you know, it was where they got to, you know, be creative and, and grow and, 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 you know, be committed. And, you know, so he talks about how some of them started investing in other people's companies and some of them like that, but some of them are like, mm. so his decision, I'm not saying, you know, it's not there's no right or wrong because there are plenty of people who sell the company and they're thrilled. I mean, I, I can think of a client who I was sure would be one of those serial entrepreneurs, you know, started on the company right away. He sold this company, tell me I'm done. Right. And I've heard that from people. And then, you know, six months later there, and you know what, he's been done for now 10, 12 years and he loves it, you know? So everybody's different. But my point is like with Damon, he says, you know what? I, I built a great management team. I don't need to be there every day. If I want to go, you know, spend uh, the summer in Europe, I can go do that. Uh, I get to work on, uh, you know, the, the bigger vision stuff when I want to do that. And, you know, I make a great living. And, you know, I, compared to what I've seen with some of my other friends, I don't want to sell. So long way of saying uh, this conversation of the contract with yourself, being clear on your what you want, getting support in that also applies in some of these deal decisions, right? So oh, 100%, 100%. And I, I also coach over the years and I'm coaching at the moment a number of founders who have sold and are in that position and I would say uh, inevitably inevitably there is a grieving process now that grieving process doesn't necessarily last the same amount of time for everybody and it's not the same for everybody just like grief isn't but that feeling of loss of irretrievable loss of the fact that you can never go back to that place that you were in when you founded your first company you know, it's like the feeling, except probably much more profound, of selling your first house. You know, it, it has all those memories of launching and growing, and now it's gone. And and like you said, the camaraderie of your friendships and, and all of that, all of that are gone. But, um, you know, as a coach, like, one of the big things is getting people to understand about setting intentions and designing an alliance. And I think those two things also apply to selling a company, but you know, they just apply in everyday life and everyday relationships, saying what you want, being clear about how you want it to be, and then being clear, you know, setting intentions and goals as well. So how you want it to be, how you want it to feel, and 
then what do you want to get out of it is really important in any in any situation. So I think you know, when you think about those people who just think, oh, we'll sell our company for a multiple of 12. Well, okay. But it's really important to think what do you want to do next and how do you want to be and how do you want your life to be? Because if you have a plan for other passions, other interests, other ways to use your time, then that's a wonderful thing to do. But if you don't, then don't sell yet. Right. Right. So you let me ask you this. Out so, without having another one to move into, right? Well, that's right. Um, so let me ask you this. So you mentioned this grieving process and it takes, you know, it affects people differently, different times. So I want to circle back to your personal situation when you sold your first company, right? Uh, what, what was that personal journey for you once you sold? Was there a grieving process that last a while? Did, did, did you stay on with that company for a while as a consultant or employee? Like what, I, what, what I, did so all I, was on, I was on an earnout, which is quite typical in the creative sector because um, that's, who, you know, and they're effectively buying the rainmakers in the company. That's who they're buying. I mean, they may right. be buying the catalog to an extent, but um, increasingly that, is the case, but they're really buying the future and the future is based on your brand and it's based on, on you. So I, I had a four year earnout yeah. uh, and I stayed with the company and for the first two years, it was pretty much, pretty much was business as usual for me. But then we started being integrated into the bigger company as they prepared for my exit. And, you know, and then, and then I left. So I think the grieving process in my case, because of the, the long earnout and how it was staged was a little bit more like when you say goodbye to a grieving to a relative who has been in care for a long time you know it, it wasn't like a sudden death which i then needed to address like a, a lot of people who i coach you know literally one day they're running the business and the next day they're out and there's hardly any time to think about it either because the new boss said get out or yep. because they just were buying the company and they didn't want them or whatever in my case, I had four years to, right. to get fed up. And, and and the new owners, of course, did move into the house and they did say, we don't like the art and we want to rearrange the furniture. So all of that as well. So I, I was really quite um, happy to leave. I sold my first company when I was 35. So I wasn't ready to go and do nothing, you know, quite yet. But um, it was probably in some ways a good time, you know, uh, of my life to do that. I think it's all it's a, a lot to do with timing. And then, and then, so so let's actually keep going forward because I, I like the way we're sort of weaving uh, lessons learned, what you bring to your coaching for your clients with your personal journey, and and you know uh, clearly, and I remember you know when we had our uh, just initial sort of pre-interview, what I I mean, listen, I, I'm a big believer in coaching, and the thing is uh, in um, in the U.S. at least, and I think it's true in the U.K. Although there are certifications and things like that, the truth is anybody can hang out a shingle and say they're a coach. Right. And, and there are many folks who are coaching people on things that they never went through, never understand. Don't have, right. And then there are folks like you who really have credibility because you've lived what you're, you know, a lot of what you're uh, you're coaching people on. So um, so you sell the uh, sell, you sell the first uh, company you, you have before your earnout, you go through your um you know, whatever, slow for your grieving process. By the time it was over, you were happy to be out. It sounds like, which is not unusual. Um, what happens next? Um, so basically the time in between then and now has been made up of a whole number of different uh, things that I've done. So I've advised TV channels in the UK and Europe. I've advised France's largest commercial broadcaster, TFR. 
I was director of formats at ITV, which is Britain's largest commercial broadcaster. And I've backed a number of TV ventures, which I've been involved with myself variously. So at the moment, I sit on the board of a number of production companies where I have a, a, a small equity stake and so try and support the next generation of leaders through that. And you know, believe it or not, sometimes I meet those people uh, initially as coaching clients because it's a really great way to get under the hood of a business by meeting the founder and hearing from them every week and finding yeah. out in the end, you know, it's all about them. And so sometimes it just so happens that that coaching relationship transitions into a advisory position where I'm not their coach, but I'm actually have a stake in their business. And that's pretty much how it's worked. Um, Love it. So I, I have sold a couple of businesses since then. Um, none as successfully as my first business, but I wasn't as in fully invested in them either. So sure. Yeah. So without delving into any details on those, just in terms of these other sales, were there any additional lessons, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, that you learned through those other sales? Uh, like a hundred percent. So um, I've just launched a program online, which is called Standout, and it's for creative startups. And it, it's really taking anyone who's in the creative sector who's about to start a company or has started a company through the nine essential pillars of learning that I went through. And it won't surprise you to know, Corey, that nearly all my learning came from my failures and my mistakes. Of course. So things that I did wrong, you know, and, and you just... Uh, you just learn so much from those things. And, and in a way, a lot of those things were things which I knew in my head before I made the mistake, but I only learned it in my body and my being by making the mistake. So right. I think, you know, just like, um, I don't know, like really simple things like who you pick for your team. Um, there are things I knew about that, but I just didn't, quite learn until I had to pay. It, it's when you have to pay dearly, either in time or money or emotional turmoil that you recognize I'm never gonna do that again. And sometimes <laughs> just impressing that on people is, is my value as a coach because I can save them a lot of money just by having them not make the mistakes that, that I made. 100%. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. Is there any, I, and I know, you know, you don't have to share any confidential information, but is there one story or one example, or something out of all of those that, uh, you know, is particularly instructive for folks? Well, yeah. So I think one thing that's like a general thing, um, but it was a pretty big lesson for me was, um, you know, at one point we were really, uh, well, at a couple of different stages in my TV production career, when you do something that kind of is successful in a particular area, then everyone wants to work with you because you're the, right. the hot young new thing on the block. And, and I was thrilled about that. What I didn't realize was you can only serve so many clients well at any one time. Yeah. So I think there's a tendency to think, 
oh, it'd be so great to have more clients or you can never have too many clients, people sometimes say. But when it comes to any, any business, unless you're serving your clients well, yep. and by that, I don't, I mean much more deeply than you probably realize well is. Like, unless they feel like, unless each of your clients feels like they are your most important client, unless each of your clients feel like you live and breathe for them, then you have too many. Right. Because no client will treat you well if they feel like you, they're your second or third or fourth most important client. So if they feel let down by you, if they feel ignored by you, if they feel somehow that you're not prioritizing their needs, you might as well not have them as a client because they won't be there for you. And that's why I'm always encouraging my coaching clients to look at who their three strongest relationships are with and do everything to build and grow and nurture them before even thinking about spreading to five or six or 10. Because when I talk to buyers and some of my clients are also buyers as well as sellers and their biggest complaint is people who seem like they're gonna be, I always use dating and marriage, like they seem like they're gonna be husband or wife material, but you know, end up like escorts because they come in and then the next thing they're gone, they're serving someone else's needs. Clients like to have focus and attention. And so I think my number one failing and my number one lesson is you can never have too few clients. Well, you know, and and it's so interesting to me because there's two things. I mean, one, I think it's just natural, especially if you are an entrepreneur that's created something from nothing, right? I haven't been handed anything that, especially in the beginning, you don't have enough clients, right? So you're always like, you know, I need to go get more business. And then when it's coming in, when you build a reputation or, you know, good relationships or whatever it is, um, you know, it's really hard to turn it away, right? Because you're so happy that the business is flowing in. So I think that's one thing. But I, but I also see that in, you know, in every field where, you know, I can't tell you how many entrepreneurs I've talked to who were like, you know, my business is four times the size it was. And you know what? I'm more stressed and not really making that much more money either because my expenses have gone up. My personality got more headaches and, you know, and people don't take that into account. Now, there are people who really successfully scale and they might be in the types of businesses. You know, it depends upon type of business, right? Cool. Where they can have teams and systems and whatever that service clients, it's less personal. Like, you know, you know, you have a limit as a coach or, you know, as a lawyer, unless you build a coaching team or other lawyers that provide that level of service, you know, uh, about doing it, but you know, it depends upon the business, but, but, but they still need to feel that whatever, whatever level it is, that's appropriate for your business that you care about them and that they're being taken care of. No question. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I would just extend what we're talking about to, to every person, you know, too. it's not just like, I'm just saying for every, every person who, who manages clients, they can only manage three or four. That's right quality that you need to do. And those clients that are good clients are much more important to have than 20 sort of mediocre ones. It's much better to have three big, great clients who feel like you're their only client than it is to have 20 who feel like you're one of 20 people they service. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you have 20 people working for you, you could have, you could, uh, you know, increase exponentially the numbers. So it's just about individual attention and service. Love it. So I, I want to just delve into, because one of the things that I like to show on this uh, podcast is, is all, the, you know, give insights into all the different types of deals that they are, because people who 
Um, most people don't know the breadth and range of different deals that can be done in various industries. Now, you know, people think about M&A and financing deals and whatever. But, um, uh, and, you know, I think people would just be interested. So let's talk about a, a, a production deal, right, in your industry. Um, so, you know, you have an independent production company, uh, and I actually have some, uh, you know, some clients that I feel so I know a little bit about it, but I'd love to hear it from you. Like, you know, how do those deals work, right? You have an independent company, they produce something, they want to they sell it to, a, you know, an outlet. Talk to us a little bit about that world. Well, I mean, the first thing you have to do is sell the idea. And, um, you know, someone once said, if you want to know what it sounds like to be in the creative industries, this is what it sounds like. No, 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 yes, no, 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 no. So you're basically pitching a lot of shows which people say no to, and you get a yes, and then the production deal itself is quite straightforward. It's usually, you know, around 10 to 12% of the production, total production spend is a production fee, which goes straight to you as a producer, as profit, and then you get contribution to overhead and and so on. But your real... Uh, I mean, the real opportunity to make money is in uh, employing staff, employing, uh, earning facilities, earning edit facilities, having a more integrated production uh, service so that you can edit and shoot and um, have everything in-house so that, you're there, so that you're then marking up the lines as well because there may be a line in the budget which is uh, 10,000 a week for edit producer, but actually you you hiring them in-house and they're only making five. And so that's, you know, that's where you make the money as well. But, so but those deals are quite straightforward. They're pretty much like any deal. Yeah. But there are so many deals along the way. First of all, I, you know, collaboration deals with other producers, co-production right. deals with people, um, bringing in the right talent to run the show so that when you pitch to the broadcaster, you have the right talent in front and behind of the camera. So you're doing deals with agents and you're dealing deals with directors because you're essentially packaging the show. So you're bringing in as much talent as you can. And again, that's about recognizing that you you never can achieve so much as if you give away the credit. You know, I can't remember which American president it was who said, you know, you won't believe what you can achieve if you give away the credit and you don't care who gets it. And I think that's really true in TV. It, it is a world of egos, of course, but the, the real value is in being able to partner with great people and have them feel ownership. Because ultimately, as the producer of any project, you do have the ownership. So if other people have a small stake or they feel ownership and take the credit, that's fine, so long as you own the rights. So you're doing lots of deals with distributors and producers and talent all the time. But the most important deal you ever do of course, is that deal with the platform or the broadcaster who's saying, we want to green light your show and here's $10 million and go make it. Because once they've paid the money to make it, you then earn the rights, at least in the UK. And, And I always coach people around one distinction, Corey, and it's the distinction between pitching and enrolling. And you could say that distinction applies across all industries and just replace the word pitching with selling. Yes. So the distinction between in in the creative industries is particularly true. Like the distinction between enrolling somebody in you, enrolling somebody in your idea, enrolling somebody in the project and selling it. Because like, if I say to you, Corey, I've got something to sell you. 
what's your immediate reaction? Your immediate reaction is, how can I avoid buying it completely? Yeah. You know, you've got it 100%. It's like if you go and buy a car and the, the car salesman goes, you know, we're going to go on a test drive. And by the end of this test drive, you are going to want to buy the car. You're spending the whole test drive trying to find reasons to get out of the car without buying it because you feel pressurized. Whereas if the salesman goes, look, I've got to be on the test drive with you, but I'm not going to say anything. Here's my car. If in a couple of days you like it, give me a call. Then you can actually enroll yourself in the experience of driving that car because there's no pressure to buy. And it's exactly the same when you're pitching a show. You have to pitch it. Uh, you have to not actually pitch it. You have to not pitch it. You have to discuss it in a way that the show exists like a ball that's floating between us here. You, mm. you don't throw it to them. They may pick it up and toss it up. They may even throw it to you and that's fine. But you don't ever throw it to them because they'll throw it right back. What you want to do is just look at it and go, I wonder if, how about, maybe, what if. So you, you start and you build. So you don't pitch them the whole thing. You don't sell them the whole thing. You don't say, I've come here to sell you X. Because, you know, X is not a car. X is an idea which you want them to say yes to. And if you want someone to say yes to an idea, they have to feel enrolled. They have to enroll themselves. They have to believe in it and they have to own it a bit themselves. Yes. So to use a, a cooking metaphor, because it always makes things simple when you use analogies, like instead of saying, look, I've got this delicious dinner that I want to serve you and it's shrimps on the barbecue with spicy pepper sauce and rice. Do you want it? Don't, don't say that. Don't say that. Say, I'm feeling really hungry. I, I've got these amazing shrimps at the market. Shall we buy some? And then they may go, oh, I love shrimp. Or they may go, I'm allergic to fish. That's too bad. And you go, oh, no problem. How about we go and get a steak? You don't commit to any element until they go, yes, we love it. Yeah. Because then they're involved. You go, they go, oh, we love shrimp. You go, well, that's great. Let's buy some. And I don't know. I was thinking... Maybe, what do you think we could cook it on the barbecue? And they go, that's great. I love barbecues. Or they might go, I hate cooking outside. In which case, yeah, I agree. Why don't we cook it in your apartment? So you buy, you build the idea with them and you never commit or attach because, I mean, we could be here all day with the distinctions, but, you know, don't be attached. So you get them to enroll themselves and you don't attach yourself to the idea. So right. the idea is just floating until they form and shape it. So I never would go into a broadcaster with, an, with a treatment, nothing written. I no. would go into the conversation, talk about it, and then say, oh, that's an amazing idea we've come up with, and it's only been half an hour. Would it be useful if I wrote that up? And they might go, yeah, I'd love that. And uh, make sure you put the bit about the spicy peppers because I really want them. And you, put, you go back and you write it up. Now, it might be that you've already got the idea written up in your bag anyway, but don't, don't pull it out because they have to right. feel like they came up with that idea. You know, it's interesting to me because before you even said, you know, they, that they say, hey, and put the bit in about the spicy peppers, the thought that came to my mind is, and, and listen, I, I do the same thing even when I sit down with a prospect, prospective client, right? Most lawyers start talking about themselves, you know? Oh, I, you know, I have this experience and I did this yeah. many deals and you should, you know, whatever, right? 
they don't they don't care, right? Um, but you know what I want to do is I want to l- ask a lot of questions, listen to them, co-create something, and then what I'm able to do, and it's it's not this is not a sales technique or whatever. It's genuine because I really do care. I really do listen. I really do want to help them achieve their objectives. When when I they basically told me how they want me to pitch them, right? It, to yeah. use a bad word, or to or yeah. to you know to enroll them is the better word, yeah. right? Because they've told me what's important to them. You, you know, it's the same process that you're talking about, right? You've had a conversation and now when you go back to write that treatment or take the one you had in your bag and tweak it and change it, right? You'll basically, you know, have all the information of what they want to see in it. And you're going to give them, you know, and you get to give them what they want, which is, which is brilliant. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I love that you mentioned that thing about, you know, not going in and talking about yourself, because this is another thing that people tend to do, particularly in any interview situation, which is, you know, after all, a deal too, because you're selling yourself. And I think a lot of people are under the crazy false impression that a successful interview is an interview where you come away as the interviewer thinking that I, as the interviewee, was brilliant, intelligent, accomplished, successful, uh, whatever it may be that you think you want to be seen as. So in other words, as an interviewee, we tend to imagine that the spotlight is on us and that we need to shine. And what that means is that a lot of people, because they feel a little bit under pressure and they're on stage and they feel like they're being scrutinized, they talk a lot about themselves and what they've done and who they... Now, the truth is, you'd never ever be called in to an interview for anything unless they thought you could do it. From your CV, you have the relevant experience. So the interview is actually an experience, a test of, how do I feel about myself, the interviewer, with you in the room? If I, as an interviewer in the room, feel like, my goodness, with this guy, Corey, I just, I don't know, the time went so quickly and I felt like I was really interesting and he seemed really interested in me. And I just have a feeling that someone like that who could make me feel like this is gonna be great on our team. And by the way, wouldn't it be wonderful if he was in our office all day because he made me feel really good. <laughs> right. So right. rather than thinking, oh my God, this guy Corey is an egomaniac. He never stopped talking about himself. I hope he never comes back and I'm never going to call him in because he sucks all the oxygen out of the room. So we do that. We suck the oxygen out of the room because we think we should, but actually it's the worst possible thing you can do for an interview. The best possible thing in any interview situation is to say, is instead of saying, look, this is all, these are the reasons why you... Corey would be so lucky to have me, Remy, on your team, which is what most people do, say, I want to tell you why I feel I would be so lucky and so honored to be in on your team. Because then I end up telling you about your company, you about yourself, you about all your accomplishments, and then you want to have me. So it's like a mirror. If you look in a mirror and all you see in the mirror is the other person, you really don't want that mirror. Because you know, it makes you feel boring. It makes you feel uninteresting. It makes you feel powerless. Whereas if the mirror is actually reflecting back a slightly more powerful, more attractive version of yourself, well, that's a mirror I wouldn't mind looking at. Right, right, right. No, that's such good advice. And you're right. I mean, you you know, you sort of use the analogy of an interview situation, which is totally perfect. But, you know, whether it's a creative, you know, uh, a pitch, quote unquote, or or, or somebody's raising capital from investors or, you know, because again, the investors have looked at your numbers already. They looked at, you know, I mean, it's the same conversation, right? They've looked at your financials. That's the equivalent of, of you know, of the CV. 
you know, when my, you know, when, when my clients have, uh, prospects are coming in to see me, they've looked at my website. They've probably got a referral from somebody. They've listened to my podcast, whatever. They don't need me to tell them who I am. They wouldn't be in there if, you know, if they didn't know who I, who I am. So yeah, it's all, it, it really is all the same across the board. I think they want you to tell you, I think they want you to tell them, Corey, that you see them and uniquely appreciate them. hundred percent. They, they want a lawyer who, they want a lawyer who knows their business. 100%, which is why, which is why most of what I do is ask them questions about themselves and their business. And frankly, for me, it's not just because I'm aware and I am aware that that's more effective, but it's actually because I'm genuine. I mean, you, you know, this is the this is the other key of it, right? The truth is, it's not a tactic. I'm genuinely interested. I'm fascinated by people who are building different businesses. I want to know that, and 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 I want to know that just even if I never work with them because I'm fascinated by it. And I want to know that because I know how much better it makes me be able to serve them. So when you combine that genuine interest, you know, with that combination of having them do the talking and showing that you care about them and that you're listening, uh, you know, it, it's, yeah, it's, it, it makes all 100%, the difference. 100%. And, you know, of course it works both ways, right? Like in an interview, you wouldn't be there if they didn't think you could do the job, but then, you probably shouldn't be there either if you didn't really want the job. So right. why not tell them why you'd want the job <laughs> other than make them do the running? And I think whoever's paying the bill deserves to have a little bit of attention paid to them. Love it. Rami, I could talk to you all day, uh, but we are, uh, you know, we are in a podca podcast. And although I guess there are a couple of people out there that do multi-hour podcasts, I'm not one of them. <laughs> so um, unfortunately, we're going to have to call at least this time around, uh, you know, coming to an end here. So uh, before I ask you my final question, I want to give you an opportunity because, listen, I mean, it's clear to me uh, the experience you have and what you bring to folks as a coach. And so if people are interested in uh, finding more about your services and, and you, what's the best place for them to go? The best one-stop place for them to go is vitality.guru. And guru is the .com. There's no .com. So it's just very simple, vitality.guru. And that way you can find about all my courses online as well as the experience of coaching with me one-on-one, whichever is appropriate. Fantastic. All right. My final question uh, on the podcast is always about freedom, which is my highest ideal and value in life. And for me, that uh, goes over from you know freedom for all people in the world from oppression to the reason why I've been an entrepreneur and haven't had a boss you know, for a long time and get to run my own show. So uh, uh, what I always uh, like to uh, close with is what does freedom mean to you in your life and business? Yeah, well, freedom for me is totally about how I spend my time, because I think time is the one thing that we're going to run out of, right? A human lifespan is 83 and a half years, and 83 and a half years equates to exactly 1,000 months. So the average human life in the West is 1,000 months, and that, you know, that means that if you're 53, you've got 360 months left if you live till 83. Now, look, I'm sure you and I are going to live to 105 Right. But nonetheless, 83 is a thousand months. So we're all running out of time and how we spend it is the most important thing. So for me, freedom is around how I spend my time, not with busyness, not with nonsense, not with other people's priorities, but actually spending my time on what is important to me and on my life purpose. So freedom is about me getting to spend my life how I want to and true to my life purpose. Oh, love it, love it. 
Remy Bloomfeld, thank you so much for being on the DealQuest podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.